0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Podcana episode 30. This week, we have some interesting updates in the metagame, as well as some clarification to how locations work, and they are absolutely broken compared to what we were speculating last week. I don't know if they're actually overpowered, but in terms of the power level of what we were speculating on and what they actually are, Uh, they're significantly more powerful and uh, less interactable. So we're going to dive into that. Uh, Before that, I just want to get y'all's sort of week in Lorcana. I mean, have you been playing? Has anything changed? I know we've hopped on before the pod. Kyle, obviously you're talking about your affinity for Amber Steel in the current metagame. You talked about Ruby Amethyst as well as that might've been your deck for the season. If there had been a competitive season
1: associated with this metagame, Um,
0: anything else to add on to that?
1: Uh, not too much to be honest. Uh I'm still happy to see that uh Sapphire Ruby is I wouldn't say uh I don't know. I don't know if I want to call it a meta deck. It still absolutely destroys Amber Steel, but Ruby Amethyst is still pretty good into it as well. Um I would say at the moment, those are my three favourite decks. I don't want to say best decks in the meta or anything like that. But mainly because I feel like um Sapphire Ruby has a pretty good matchup into your Amber Steel. Amber Steel can still take down Ruby Amethyst if you do some crazy wheel shenanigans. And uh I just like games in Lord Canada that are that are close, that you feel like you actually have a shot in coming back. Uh and it's not just completely one sided And I I feel like it's like something that you've mentioned uh throughout the, the episodes, Brennan. Like they've done a fantastic job of balancing the game. Um But speaking of that, I mean, I don't know, let's see what, what locations we'll bring. I know you were saying with the introduction of locations, we could see a, uh, we could see control possibly um, go go down or disappear. I don't know if we're going to disappear completely, but let's
0: let's just hit it real quick. So for the forgotten castle, which is the one we talked about last week, um, it was the amethyst location. Basically that lore symbol in the bottom right is a passive amount of lore. You gain each turn as a location is on the battlefield. The, Symbol in the left that had the one on it. I don't know what to call that symbol. Um, that's how much you have to pay to move something to that location, which is crazy. So, like, let, let's look at the Forbot, Forgot, Forbidden Mountain. Forbidden Mountain, is it? Um, it's basically a Sorcerer's Spellbook that's inkable. It costs two, and you have to deal six damage to it. So, there's there's a push and pull going on here. Sorcerer's Spellbook. You can't attack it for six damage and clear it. But the fact that this costs two and is inkable is just absolutely insane. I mean, what... What this screams to me is that they're trying to interject combat into the game. Because, like, let's be honest, like, Lorcana, I know the mid-range games are kind of combat-oriented and some of the aggro games are, but in general, combat is not as critical to the game as I thought it would be initially. Uh, Maybe that's because I play a lot of control decks, but locations will definitely change that because you can't be prepared all locations. You're going to have to have bodies on board to clear these things because they're gaining passive lore every single turn. So I know that, you know, for what will be multiple sets now, we've been talking about the potential downfall of control. I think the locations are actually going to change the dynamic up quite a bit. And our current iteration of control decks are going to have to re- respond significantly in order to deal with this because, you can't be playing a control deck and letting a, something like a sort of what is this Forbidden Mountain sitting on the battlefield. Like you have to have board presence to be able to to clear these things. Maybe there will be cards that clear locations, uh, maybe. But I actually think that they're going to lean away from that because they want you to interact via killing a location by um, hitting it and you know reducing its defensive or its its life total, whatever you want to call. Boy, and I saw you were surprised to see this. What are your thoughts on on locations? Yeah, I didn't I
2: didn't know that before. I know it's, I, it's crazy. They, I think it sounds absolutely crazy. Crazy that they are passively generating law with that much HP. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like that it will point the game to towards um, board combat being more more relevant than it was before. Mm. So you you agree with that, right? You
0: you think? Do you all do? Because that I mean that's an opinion, right? This Mm -hmm. this idea that the locations these locations will be so powerful that they will force decks to uh, play more to board and play more combat oriented in order to deal with them do you think that they're at that power level will they force the metagame to adapt in that way
2: um so, so I, all i know is the forbidden mountain yeah, yeah. but if they're along the level of forbidden mountain i think they will definitely do that because even against locations like this you cannot just sit back and uh let your opponent chip some lore then wipe the board then play some Lady Tremaine that clears one card. If if they're passively generating one lore or mult for for each location or a, a little bit of lore for each location that they they have on the board, that will not be enough to stabilize. Yeah. Uh, so you you will be forced to to play for board more so that you will be able to clear this in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and the dynamic actually goes both ways. So I talk about control having to respond to this in order to clear locations because they can't just be prepared and then maintain advantage, uh, you know, for the rest of the game. But this is also potentially good for control as well in some weird way. Uh, I I think that locations will be pretty aggressive, you know, because they'll be maybe low costed, and you know, control doesn't usually play a bunch of these characters that ha- that engage in combat. But on the other hand. You as a control deck can play out locations and then you can just be prepared the board. And you can just wipe your opponent's board and have your locations passively tick up.
2: So to clarify, do we know now how exactly the locations work? Do we know everything about mm-hmm. them? Or?
0: Yeah, so that I think that's pretty much everything in regards to how they work is like um you have to so you can move a character to a location, but you can't move it off. So if you want to get one of those effects that you know exists in the text box where it's like, oh, this you gain a lore whenever this moves to location, once you move mm-hmm. something to location, you can't move it off. Um, if you kill location, it doesn't kill the creature on top of it. I mean, there's actually tons of like these like finicky rules, but it Mm -hmm. kind of works how you would expect it to. The main takeaways are the, the lore symbol in the bottom, right. Is passively gained each turn in your setup step. Uh, so that also alludes to something that I wasn't super aware of, which there is like the setup step. So at the start of your turn or something like that, uh, you gain that lore. And then the symbol in the left is actually how much you have to pay in order to move the character to the location is there any other
1: benefit to moving a character besides that kind of text box like what what benefit do i have to have my character at a location like can Mm -hmm. one of your cards directly challenge my card if it's at a location does i have to hit the location itself first do we know these
0: so i believe you can attack the character on the location you don't have to attack the location first Mm -hmm. um and from what i understand there is no benefit outside of like a benefit that is stated on the card in terms of moving to the location
2: sure and uh, can you always attack a location, or only when there's some condition met? I think you can always
0: attack a location.
2: Okay, That's so really that that makes maybe like cards like Maui Scar. Yeah, I know. It makes these, run, these rush cards yeah. very good, especially Scar.
0: So, yeah, Scar. Yeah.
1: yeah. Although Scar Scar is going to be interesting, right? Because it is when you banish. I'm. Sh- let's 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 look up the text here it yeah, is yeah, when you yeah. banish a character right so like i guess you could wipe a few there. yeah you can wipe a few characters and then finish off a location yeah, so it the, means it if they have of your... locations you can't do
2: location 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 you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so to relieve your sky excited but i think scar and maui um maybe their their biggest weakness would be sometimes they just don't have a good attack um and with locations being introduced into the game they will have a lot more good attacks so i think it mm-hmm. will just make these cards a lot better do you think that
0: location, like I know we only have Forbidden Mountain. Well, actually, we don't mm-hmm. because a lot of gets built, but we don't remember what those look like, and we're not going to talk about the Mahon anyway. But say you only have Forbidden Mountain, do mm-hmm. you think that locations look better for control decks, mid range decks,
1: or aggro decks right now?
2: Well, that's an interesting question.
1: Mm, that's a really good question.
2: Um, so first instinct would be aggro, right? Mm-hmm. Because it gives them a way to gain some extra lore that's harder to interact with. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, you could... A, a 6 HP location, you could think, what if what if Control just plays this? And then Aggro doesn't really want to spend uh, so much tempo attacking into into the location because it will mean every time that they attack, they are not questing with their characters. Um, so there's some interesting dynamic in that as well. And also it can set up for... If locations are good against Botwipe, right, which is right now, be prepared. It also means that what if on your turn six, maybe you wouldn't have a good play, but instead you just play like a location or a f- few locations. And then your opponent is in a really awkward position where they can't really afford to trade into your stuff. But if they don't, you can be prepared and your locations would still, still be there. So I think that, that can be applicable to different archetypes, but mm-hmm. maybe more towards aggro.
0: Yeah, and the fundamentals of Forbidden Mountain as well. You, you drop it on two, it has six defense, right? So it, it's going to gain a lore more than likely. It's probably going to gain two lores. So you have this two cost and now it gets two lore and tempoes your opponent out by making them put six damage into it. I mean, Forbidden Mountain in of itself is like, it feels crazy powerful in the current meta. Like, that Compared would be the
1: Sorcerer's Spellbook right yeah. now. And you would think this card is insane, right? Like, the only downside is yes, it can be hit into, but. I mean, for for that's also an upslide. Six HP, yeah, yeah exactly. That's yeah. like a, that's a
0: huge tempo loss for your opponent. If your opponent mm. is, is attacking into this, they can't quest. They're also exerting their mm. characters, so now you can clear them off the back end of that. Like, there's so much
2: going on here. Um, yeah. At, at the same time, I'm starting to wonder because at at on initially I thought like, okay, passively gaining lore, it's like this insane thing, right? But let's compare it. I have a mm. little bit of a thought experiment in my head. Let's compare it to a character. Um, every character can passively gain lore. It just means that it's able to be attacked. So, like every character can can quest. That's like not nothing, nothing crazy. So let's say let's say we had a two cost character that has zero attack and six HP and quests mm-hmm. for one. How would we rate that? I mean, of co- okay, of course locations are can be cleared by stuff like be prepared or maybe dragonfire. I assume they can not be cleared by stuff like that. But still, like on the base level, two a two cost zero six that quests for one. How good would that be? <sighs> it's
0: interesting so yeah a 2 cost zero 06 custom. would you play that in let's say that was an amethyst would you play mm-hmm. that in the current amethyst uh, amethyst amber aggro deck
2: um, probably not because I mean no, the amethyst no, yeah. aggro deck needs to mm-hmm. protect their 1 drops instead of um, having a 2 drop threat so they need like 1 drops and simba that's really what they want they don't really want on 06 Mm-hmm.
0: That's a good way to compare, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the 06 is also, it's only, I feel like it's only super powerful on like the early turns of the game. If you get it late, especially if your opponent's head on board, it's like, it's really bad. Um, Yeah, it's also,
2: yeah, because you you could also look at at it in a way where you say, okay, this is an 06, but actually, this is an 06 that can be attacked already on the turn it's played, which most characters cannot be.
1: Mm. Mm. That's very, very true. Yeah, you can't protect this card at all. Hmm. Very interesting. So we
0: now have two, you know, two expansions of Lacuna. We'll look I don't know what it looked to be. That are just completely like changing the entire dynamic of the game. I mean, the uh, the Rise of the Floodborn sort of changed how lore was gained. You know, prior to Rise of the Floodborn, lore was very face up um, in terms of like how much lore your opponent could gain on the following turn. We changed that with this set because there was a lot of like lore out of hand or bouncing and like all these other interactions. So it, it changed the way lore was um, attained quite a bit. And now these locations, I mean they're just wildly different like wildly different from characters like anything we've seen before so but i do think you can draw that comparison like you said to a character to like a creature um it does have additional downsides like it can immediately be attacked it's it's hitting back for zero etc so i don't know it seems powerful but not as powerful as my initial reaction now that we draw
2: yeah i I think it's like an Definitely I'm um, looking forward to seeing how exactly they're balancing these dislocations because I think uh, just on on their own they're a very interesting concept, yeah, mm-hmm. let's also consider this is a common location, and I don't know if
1: they'll actually do rare locations i am assuming they're all going to be common and uncommon that might just i don't know might be a weird take, but I'm gonna assume you know you're not going to have some legendary location that's just absolutely busted um, i um I can see it why not an <laughs>
2: enchanted location, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get, an, I get an, an armor piece that everyone needs to buy for for Flashpoint.
0: <laughs> uh, starts in play, stays in play. You don't want to see any of those, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, really cool. Um, excited to see the spoilers as they continue to drip out. And I really, I love the way that Lorcana does spoilers, <laughs> how they drip them out to us and we sort of, we get, well, outside of the, you know, whole second week. Um, yeah, yeah. They drip them out to us, so we get this this sort of, we get to build up this story as they slowly drip out, and like we get a better picture of the set as it goes on over a long period of time. That's how you should do spoilers. Uh, Flesh and Blood is the antithesis of that, and they do it all in one weekend, and it just sucks. So I love this because we just—I don't know—it expands my my theory crafting of the game every single time. There's a new card, and that's really fun. Anyway, let's ho- let's hop onto the competitive tournament deck list we're going to be looking at this week. This is a very small tournament, so I would say.
1: This is about not the same size as the one I was in realistically, yeah. like mine was about 25 players, so yeah, yeah.
0: so there's 28 players at Cerebus Den. This is not indicative of the meta, but it's still really interesting to look at. Um, you know, like last time we looked at a player, a tournament of 200 players, that's a significantly better sample size. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the reason why I bring this up, and of course, if you're listening and you're like, oh, where are these tech are talking about, like in the description, we'll link to the uh Mushi report that has them all listed. There's a ton of Emperor Steel, but more importantly. There's a ton of flutes. What are all these flutes doing in these decks, Moin? I don't know if you see here in the top four, we have a deck with four flutes. In the top eight, uh, we have an, we have another deck with four flutes. Both Ambersteel, look to be wheel decks. Um, yep, both Ambersteel and wheel decks playing four flutes. Four of.
2: Def- I, I cannot say I'm surprised. Uh, <laughs> maybe people are less ignorant than I, than I first thought. Lute flutes are just kind of the truth. Yep.
0: Yeah. We also have uh, Amber Ruby sort of making its way back into the metagame to an extent. This was a deck that emerged very, very late into the Chapter 1 metagame, Mm. um, just as the very end. And uh, yeah, I think I saw this a little bit early, but you know, the addition of Mother Gothel to this deck and giving you that consistent draw for Rapunzel definitely increased the power level of the deck. They've accessed things like Lady Tremaine now. Uh, but overall, this is like the quintessential fair mid-range deck or like the most fair mid-range deck because Amber Steel's a mid-range deck, but they play a whole new world. Um, this deck just purely exists off of uh, just combat and big set of characters. And of course, the card draw via Rapunzel and things like that.
2: And it did play quite well. It's a, it's a fair deck until Mufasa pulls like a Surfer Stitch that draws cards or something.
1: Or Maleficent yeah. or something, yeah.
2: <laughs> or I guess, wait, does Surfer Stitch draw cards if you pull it? Maybe not. But still, if it just pulls any big card.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Mufasa is just a fascinating card as well. There's one other deck list uh, that looks to have came last <laughs> that I want to talk about. And that is the Steel Amethyst deck list. It is a Steel Amethyst control deck list. This is the color combination that, I want to be good so, so, so bad. Um, I just want to get y'all's thoughts on it. I know, I don't think any of us have had a chance to play with Steel Amethyst in in this metagame, but what are your thoughts now that they have access to the new beast and they have this draw engine um, sort of inherent in, in the deck in itself? Because that, that was, I mean, what did it struggle with? Before? The main thing it struggled with in regards to, you know, being Steel Amethyst and not Ruby Amethyst is didn't have Be Prepared, didn't have Maleficent, didn't have Maui, but the metagame has less aggro, so I think you... I mean, Maui is... It's still good, but it's not as important as it was, I guess, in Chapter 1. And now you have Beast, which can draw cards. And just, like, you also have the Cinderella, which we can potentially interact with cards that are that are not tapped. So, I don't know. It's This is the color combination that I really want to be good
2: in Larcona. So, this yeah. uh, this like, the control deck that doesn't... That has its limitations. It can't clear... And huge boards, but it's much better against aggro, and it still has the the amethyst tools to uh, generate value, to to bounce your stuff, to maybe have a spell book or something in there to to have like some inevitability of of lore. So I I mean I I also still still somewhat believe in the color combination. I I would have expected to see some different cards. Like I think I still would want the the snake mims, so the two-cost and the three-cost mims, mm-hmm. I think I would mm-hmm. still want Arthur. I, I would want to go a little bit more low to the ground, have it be an anti-aggro deck that can also like, pack its own punch.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they found that, you know, Grab Your Sores, uh, Let the Storm Rage On, Strength of Raging Fire, Smash, like all this removal package was enough to deal with aggro that they didn't have to go into that Mata mim package. But, like I mean, the madam package just feels... A little bit overpowered. I mean, it just feels like it, they, it, that was kind That's of strong. If we, yeah, if we look at the set, it's like, if they made a mistake like anywhere, it's like, yeah, the Mims are like really, really good. The downside of Mim is not that much of a downside to where you can justify getting like a two cost three, three out or a two cost four, two with rush. Like, it's so powerful. Yeah. Especially I mean, I can... because...
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I think including like, because this particular list uh, it doesn't have any, it actually has no balance cards in it. Um, has Merlin, but, like, there's no tools in the deck that actually interact with bouncing it. But, like, the reason why I think you would want to just include bouncing a deck like this is because you have such big threats. Like, imagine you play Elsa, and then you can bounce Elsa, and then you can kind of, like, play it again. Like, I've I've had that done to me before. It's like, you play these really big bodies, even, like, Ursula, or whatever, you can then uh, attack with it, or you can quest with it, and then you can bring it back to your hand and bounce. Like, uh is a card that really surprised me, because, yes, like, com- in comparison to Lady... Tremaine, it's, uh, I don't know, I mean, it has its upsides and its downsides, right? Inkable, stats are a little bit better. Obviously, if you use it to remove one of your opponent's stuff, you're actually giving them more cards. But even a card like Yzma, if you're just trying to consistently say, okay, I want, I want to stop you from questing, from you doing your thing, you just keep bouncing back cards to their hand. Um, and then you bounce your Yzma back and you can do it again. Or alternatively, you just bounce your Yzma back, bounce your own cards back uh, to then, or shuffle your own cards back into your deck to draw more cards yourself i think it's just it's just good and then even if you don't do that, that crazy big stuff with all of your big cards i mean we like we said the bounce package is already just good with just the mims bouncing back your cheap one cost getting your rush card out like i don't know why madame rush isn't in the stack but maybe like you said brandon it is because they found that this is pretty low to the ground already it's- like I, I i do like the smash in here i think smash is a card that people haven't like we haven't really expected to see it much it's kind of and um, gone out of a lot of the amber steel decks but it still is a good card because it hits a lot of really good targets like it hits the merlins it hits aerials it, it like smashy is solid but i also understand why it's not an amber steel uh in this meta is because you have so many great alternatives to kind of use and you can kind of do a little bit of chip damage to to get rid of the uh like important singer cards already
2: for, for me i'm i'm such a big believer in the meta Mims. it's they're not anti-aggro cards they're mm. also not like they're not not aggro cuts. Then then they they can be everything you want them to be. It's just they're very efficient early game drops that will contest your opponent's board. But if your opponent doesn't is is not aggressive, they will also just make your own aggressive board. That's that can just chip in lore and will be hard to to remove. I I think they just um which which isn't really the greatest thing for a game. But I think if I'm playing amethyst, I'm playing a few one drops and I'm I'm putting the mims in to have like a very strong consistent efficient early game.
0: Yeah, for me, mod, the modern package feels like the most... Well, I guess it's in contention with the Popsicle draw engine, but it feels like the most overpowered thing to come out of Rise of the Floodborne. Maybe the most overpowered thing in a vacuum, because those cards are so powerful in a vacuum, but we also... They're the also so
1: flexible. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, like, Popsicle does one thing, it does the draw, but like, like exactly what Moin said, it can be anti-aggro, but then even if you draw it in the late game, it can then become value. Like, you no. can turn
2: it into value, which is, like, super, super flexible, so... Yeah, so like it's good early it has its applications late game and all of the cards are incobit. so even when they're bad <laughs> they're okay. yeah that's
1: true yeah
2: well like i said very very small tournament but
0: uh just cool to i mean this is this this is a top eight where there's no ruby this. i wouldn't take that as gospel be like this is the metagame ruby this is gone but mm. it's interesting to see diversity in, in the meta uh, i think that this is the kind of metagame that i would expect if i went to an open tournament i think ruby amethyst tends to float to the top um for multiple reasons which i don't know might be out of the scope of this but i do think that most of the metagame if you go to a tournament with a lot of players is going to be amber steel i think that's going to be the most popular deck mm-hmm. yeah
1: i don't know if you yeah. have to agree that's been, has that agree. been your experience yeah 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 100 it's been like i don't know if i had to put it into a, a, a percentage thing like it's at least fifty percent, maybe sometimes even over fifty percent Amber steel, thirty percent ruby amethyst, and then other cool experimental decks but i mean it's it's it, we've been saying it for so long now it's because I think it's especially because Amber steel was so popular uh in set one, the deck is just still good in set two so it's the type of deck that a lot of people have the pieces for already and you just find whatever pieces you need to complete it yeah
0: i and I think that like most players can get get behind like the Amber Steel ethos and like what it's trying to do and they can have fun with the deck where like the Ruby Amethyst deck, or at least the old Ruby Amethyst deck I mean it takes like a very specific player that like yeah. likes to play control and likes that kind of gameplay because it's very atypical, right? Like you're not really competing on board. You're kind of just trying to wipe board and win in the end game. Um and yeah uh, In in general it feels like in card games people gravitate more towards these mid-range decks And this is a mid-range deck that has a whole new world or wheel of fortune and that's just busted (laughs) It's so strong
1: that that being said just because it's a I mean It's a it's a deck that I would say a lot of people can play but there's I still think there's a huge uh, uh, High skill cap to the deck especially mainly being within the whole the whole the whole new world because there's so many I mean that is the card that you could be in a winning position, you could play it and then you could lose the game. You could, you could lose the game because you played this card. Obviously, you can win the game because you played the card, but um, if people don't understand how to use that card efficiently, then you could literally throw a game so easily.
0: Yeah, I think all of Lakana is like super high skill cap, especially because the inking system is uh, very, very punishing. Except for all the decks especially plays. Just decks <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to cast uh, Just In Time and Cheesy <laughs> on like turn three. Anyway. Um, so, the last thing in our headlines here is we hit 1K subs, which is great. woo! Yeah. woo. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, thank you all for your for your support. That's a good milestone for us. Uh, we also, I was going to leave it to the end of the pod, but I guess I'll do it in the headlines. The watching, giveaway, let's yeah. go! If you're watching, um, if you're listening on Podflier, you're probably a little confused right now, but I'm holding up the Disney 100. Um, we're doing this as a giveaway. I finally received it in the mail, so we will draw the winners on next week's pod. The way you can enter is you leave a written review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Probably do it on Apple Podcasts because I don't even know where to find the written reviews on Spotify. Uh, we've gotten so many reviews, to be honest, since we started asking for them, so that's been very, very helpful. If you want to be entered for this, get get your review entered now because I think it might take two or three days to show up because they do a little bit of like vetting and stuff to make sure you're not saying anything crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll draw winners next week so thank y'all so much for your support anyway on to our Spilled Ink listener question section
1: let's go or this is always my favorite section because uh, we get into such deep discussions it's 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 dynamic
0: yeah (laughs) We have a long one this time, so I'm gonna to have to try my like my group reading <laughs> my group reading skills
1: again. All right. Brendan reads for the class, yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, it's it was tough back then, it's still tough now. Right. <laughs> First one here is from Roro Bear. They say locations passively generating lore while being immune to board wipes will force the meta Toward more board-based combat, you can't sit back and rely on Be Prepared to put you back into a game while locations are chipping away lore. The design and bal- balance team seems to really understand the game, and they knew Be Prepared uh, would be a card that would warp the game around itself. So we kind of had this conversation, but I want to get your your thoughts more around like the second sentence there, which is that this is a response from the balance team um, due to a card like Be Prepared. Be prepared is the answer to pretty much everything in the game. You know, not not completely everything, because there is, like, you know, the, I don't know, I guess, the bounce cards. There's things like Sorcerer's Spellbook. Um, flute. Yep, flute. Of course. Yeah. How could I forget can't flute? <laughs> can't keep ignoring the flute for can't, no reason. Can't ignore the flute. Um, but do you guys think that locations is a response to... I don't know if it's a response, but you'd have to say that they had the, the premonition, per se, because they designed five sets in events, I believe, uh, to think that the game would be warped around a card like Be Prepared and they want to have. You want to give players more tools that are uninteractable with that card. Um,
2: yeah, I think it's, it's totally possible. So my first instinct, I kind of wanted to say, like maybe Be Prepared shouldn't have been printed in the first place, but then on the, at the same time, you want some comeback mechanism to to exist in the game mm-hmm. right that's 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 important um so it's it's these entire board cards are very dangerous uh, cards i would say uh, game design wise, but they're still important, and I think not them uh, adding more and more ways to actually play around the card is is very very smart of them
0: oh, uh, just agree yeah <clears throat> honestly i think if if any card was a mistake it's uh it's a whole new world uh. I think a whole new world is a fun card. I think it's a cool card. It's making the meta, it's in a good spot right now. But if there's any card, like, there's one, if there's any card that I would bet the house on that will get banned first in Lorcana, it is a whole new world. (laughs) That card is, uh, it has the potential to just be obscenely broken. And it gets pretty close now, to be honest. Uh, Next one is from Camille Boomer. They say, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on Green Steel, uh, Beast Relent- the Green Steel Beast Relentless deck. I keep running into it more and more on ladder lately and find it tricky to play against. Do you think it has potential on paper or is it just a pixel war trend and not a tone and not a tone of potential outside of it? So the Green Steel Beast Relentless deck. I haven't played against this deck. Calla, uh, do you know anything about it? Because I feel like you're closer to this uh, Green Steel archetype than I am.
1: Yeah, uh, I think... I didn't play against it, but somebody played it at my locals about two weeks ago, uh, and all I know is that they got absolutely dumpstered, and they were really they were really high on it. So that's not to say. Listen, that's a very you know a very small uh, scale, but I don't know. I I feel like a lot of people were talking this deck up, or at least wanted deck to do well, and that's that's fair. Like in like okay if a lot of people are coming into set two and they played set one, you know, to to see Amber Steel again, to see Ruby Amethyst again, I understand people want to try and experiment and try and get like new decks and, and make new things happen, which that's probably the biggest reason why I'm personally happy that Ruby software exists. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's hard for me to say because I also don't have enough experience against the deck, but my understanding is if I don't have much experience against the deck, there's probably a reason why people aren't playing the deck against me, if that makes sense. Um, but, yeah. Have you played against it much more in
2: on ladder? I, occasionally I play against Green Steel Mill or Green Steel Discard, but not really mm-hmm. a Green Steel Beast. Um, so I think if there's potential then most people haven't discovered it yet, and I, I don't see the potential yet, but uh, maybe, it, maybe it still exists.
1: You know, I think next set, it could, if, if we're going towards a more of a combat on board based game then it might have potential because at the moment any like the, the green legendary beast that basically whenever anything gets damaged, you ready to use quest, you're ready to go. Like so many things have to be there in order for that card to be good. And it's the biggest thing that Brendan talked about uh, like pretty early on in this podcast is like cards that just do things when they come down are really good. But a card like beast has, has so many conditions to it, right? It has so many conditions to it. You have to have so many supporting cards in your hand to support the effect or you have to have so many cards on the board to support the effect and then even if you have those two things your opponent also needs to have all these cards on the board and it's not like even okay if they have like one or two cards okay maybe i get value it's good but if the whole concept of this deck is to kind of pop off and like i don't know this is like a very much a combo a combo deck like i would not call it like a an otk deck you know what i mean because i'm actually a big fan i'm a big fan of otk decks but uh, I don't think we're going to see anything like that in Lorcana anytime soon unless we see something absolutely busted. And if we do see something absolutely busted like that, I think it's going to be shut down pretty quickly because that's not going to be healthy. Like any anything like that that just gets lore super super fast um, I think will be very bad for the game.
0: It's uh, it's really funny how we talk about like I, I think I, I, I sort of set the idea a little bit too much or like I, I said it too much at the beginning where I was like oh like locations will come in the force combat I think so, but also I would not be surprised to see Ruby Amethyst do what it did in this set, because we're like oh shit, Ruby Amethyst is going to really struggle against all this discard, aggro got so much better, and then it was like, boom reverse Uno, actually Mm -hmm. none Mm -hmm. of that matters Ruby Amethyst is still great, and I would see in the third set, it's like, oh Ruby Amethyst. Ruby Amethyst is actually the deck that plays all the locations. Then it wipes your board, and then it just passively gains. Like you, you never kind of know how these things will go. So it could encourage more combat, but it could also do the opposite, where it would just be like, "Oh, I just wipe off all of your characters, prevent you from doing combat, and then I passively gain through lore through my locations," which would be an absolute delight for. Uh,
1: Seems us like today. these locations are kind of like your. Alternative to evasive cards that we had at the start, right? It's yeah. kind of like you know they just chip a bit of lore and like yeah, it. evasive is the yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Evasives
2: <laughs> you cannot attack locations you can always yeah. attack. Yeah, but you, but you can't, can't be
0: you can't be prepared and you can't like, you can't be prepared,
2: prepared a location.
1: Yeah, this is yeah, yeah, you can't drag you can't dragon fire a location. Yeah, I which mean you, maybe you have hmm.
0: a mid range deck that's all evasives and locations, and it's just like your opponent's deck just cannot deal with all of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. yeah and we're also talking about this with knowing one location cards we could be completely wrong there could be so many cards like i don't know who knows there could literally be a three cost card that just says get rid of a location i don't yeah. know if, you know what I mean? who, yeah. who fucking knows yeah all right next one
0: is from Cyberbro. they say what are your thoughts on going first in the game do you think that going second needs a bit more incentive currently i feel like going first just has way <clears throat> just has way too much in comparison to going second uh being ahead in developing ink lore challenging agency I can start this one out. I think that going first in Larkan is objectively better, and with every deck so far that I've experienced has been better with every single deck. I always want to go first. There are some decks or some matchups where it is more important than others, like in set one and even in this set. Like sometimes when you're on when you're going second against an aggro deck, you have minimal choices or no choices at all because you're a li- you're an entire ink behind. Um, I actually do think that they need to work on that because right now it feels, it just feels always correct to go first, and that 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 makes the decision when you win the die roll not interesting.
1: I agree. I I, I agree. Now I agree that in terms of everyone I've played against is always like you roll, they win it, I go first. Everyone wants to go first. I do agree with that. I feel like when the die roll happens and if I go second, especially in certain matchups I feel like okay, I'm really behind or whatever. However, there's a lot of games where I've gone second and I've still done yeah, pretty well. But like yeah, yeah, it's true. It really is true like there's there's games where like at the very start I feel like okay, um I'm going second, I've got a shit hand whatever. They get a shit hand, I get a shit hand whatever. But in comparison to a lot of other games, right? Um I don't know, like most of the other card games I I know of have something to combat if you go second. Hearthstone has the coin. Um, a certain game I was playing recently has like a certain mechanic where like it puts a certain like unit or character body on the board. Let's just say for okay, let's just say for example, if you were like they wouldn't do this in Orcana because it's a physical card game, but um, I guess they could print it. Whatever, imagine they just said okay, if you go second, you just get a one one on the on the board. That wouldn't happen, but like that's a that's something that okay like if I go second, mm-hmm. maybe I actually get something else brendan do you know of any other things i I don't don't like flesh
0: and blood it's like um so flesh and blood is a your deck is a resource um Mm -hmm. so often in limited in flesh and blood by going first so both players draw back up to four after the first turn so Mm. if you expend cards on the first turn um you can lose tempo because your opponent goes second, so they get... When your opponent goes second, because like I said, you both jump to four, they get the first turn that impacts your hand, right? Because now you have to block from hand and you're actually losing those cards. Where on the first turn, you're losing any cards. But if you go first, you can also put a card in your arsenal and you get the first five-card hand. Also, if you're trying to beat your your opponent by making them lose cards in their deck while going first, you can attrition them out of more cards. You can, because they're incentivized to block because they're effectively free rolling it and you can trade cards one for two. Flesh and Blood is a very complicated, like resource-based attrition game sometimes. And like, these are more advanced strategies, but there are plenty of plenty, plenty, plenty of situations where it is correct to go second and Flesh and Blood over going first.
2: So, just to, to add a few few mechanics from other card games, where going second has some other advantage, which I think is important and it's a little sad that we don't have it. Um, so I guess recently we had DC Dual Force, where the, your heroes would gain action points. And if you're going second, that would be the first time players get action yeah. points. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a very good way to combat the first player advantage, I think. And then in one piece, they just have a completely different resource system, where first player has one resource, then second player has two, and then the first player has three, four, and then until both are up to ten. So every player, like every turn, you will be the the player that had this amount of resources first before your opponent, no matter if you're going first or second. So that's also very interesting. And I think even, I would say in a couple of these games, even with all of these mechanics in play, uh, you still often want to be going first. So... Now without these mechanics in play, you always want to be going first, and I don't think it's a small advantage. I think it's a very significant advantage no matter the matchup, no matter the deck. And yes, that, that it doesn't feel great. Uh, even if, of course it's very possible to to win games going second, but it doesn't feel great when um s- such a big uh part of wa- of your chances to win or lose are already decided on on going first or second. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that is an Maybe one of the biggest issue the the game uh, currently has game design wise. I agree. It's a big
1: issue with probably card games in general, isn't? You're you're trying to minimise that r uh, RNG effectively, unless you're Marvel Snap. Um, of you know, like want, wanting it to be kind of as fair as possible. But obviously, some some decks will will take advantage of, like what they want is okay. Some decks will take advantage of going first. Some decks will take advantage of going second. But in this situation. In Lorcana there's no deck that wants to go second, right? Mm. There's no deck. There's an interesting
0: uh, dynamic there because you mentioned RNG and wanting to avoid that, but actually card games want that. Um so card games actually oh. want that RNG to an extent for a few reasons. Uh like there's this idea that you want there to be an inherent win rate to a deck regardless of like the objective skill of the players whether or not. There's a reason why you play best two out of 3 in Lorcana mm-hmm. is like let's say that your opponent's deck you know, like, you know, like if you take like magic, right? Like there's like this chance, like you'll be at best like 70, 30 into a match. It's almost regardless of skill because you have this like inherent fail rate with like lands and, you know, all mm-hmm. other kinds of things, matchup. But when you take a 70, 30 and then you put it across a best two out of three, it actually comes down significantly to where like the better player wins most of the time. It's why best of one can feel so bad. And like, there mm-hmm. is an aspect of game design where this inherent RNG or this ability for the player that is less skilled and I don't want to put it this way, but less deserving of the win can win because if you have a game that doesn't have that, it can feel really, really bad. So like, there's a game that exists like that. It's called Flush and Blood. <laughs> and basically the the worst player wins a vast majority of the time. And they've now been working via design in the sets to include more variants and include more decks that utilize variants in RNG to have spiky turns <clears throat> in order to mitigate this. Cause right now in Flush and Blood, if you come in as a new player, you'll get beat down for months months you will just lose every single game you will never win um most of the time uh, depending on your opponent and that's that's actually really not a good thing and some of that can be mitigated with like there is this inherent power to just winning the die roll to this initial rng the reason why i don't like it in arcana is because there's no we have this die roll right and once you win the die roll you're presented with a choice should i go first or second it's not a choice there's no choice so it's like it might as well just be like whoever wins the die roll goes first right now And I I
2: wish they would put a push and pull there. Okay, just to... Because for me, I think it's different. I think um, even if some decks would want to go second, some would want to go first, I think it would still be a frustrating thing for uh, so much of the game being decided before it's already started. Mm -hmm. I think that that, that would still be an issue. And I I agree that it's important that the quote-unquote worst player occasionally wins. I think that's very important. But I, I think... If there's some variance or stuff that decides that maybe the little bit worse player uh, wins the game, I don't like that it's before the game starts. If it like happens in the middle of the game, I think that that feels a lot better than if it's at the start of the game.
0: Mm. Even if it's an illusion, right? Because it, that's yeah. that's an interesting concept. Because if it happens in the middle of the game, did it happen in the middle of the game? Or did it also happen at the start of the game because of like how the decks were just initially set up as you put them? Right, it was like predetermined yes. right from the from the setup of the deck. Yeah, I mean this is all mm-hmm. like deep theory of card, <laughs> of card games, like philosoph- uh, philosophy of card <laughs> games. But um, to answer the question, I do think you're correct, Cyber Road. It's overwhelmingly better to go first in this game. Um, and then, yeah, the gap feels a little big right now. Uh, I mean, especially in chapter one against some of those aggro decks, I would be going second and be like, well, I basically have almost no chance to win this game. So I'll try to win game two and I'll get very, try to get very lucky in game three. Uh, I do think though, that some people put a little bit too much, um, they give a little too much credence to that, that, you know, like they automatically lose the game. If they go seconds, absolutely not the case. I remember I played against one player that like, before we even rolled the dice, he was just like, yeah, I just feel like this game is up to the dice roll. And it's just like, basically absolving himself of any responsibility of playing the game correctly or like all of that. And, um, yeah, he won the die roll. And after the end, when he lost, he was like, yep, this game is all about the die roll. And I was like, Metaphorically, and he was like, "What?" And I was like, "You, you won the die roll." And he's like, "Ah, well, yeah." <laughs> it was like, "Oh, this, that." Uh. I think it's important to not to try to analyze your own play and not point to these uh, variance factors as reasons why you lost. Because the reason we the reason we play card games is because there's variance. Believe it or not, even when it feels like shit sometimes. All
2: so right, just just what? Okay, I know we're going a long time about this, but I just wanted to, one thing to add because like. I we I and I think we as podcast want to be teaching players to analyze their own plays, right? I think that we, we all think that's important. But the issue with or not the issue with that is, but I think like the flip side of that is, game design wise, I think it's important to give players um, illusions that they can point towards why they would be losing the game, so that they can say, oh, I lost because of this, and that they don't have to say, oh, it was my own fault. But like as 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 players that want to improve, it is important to analyze, of course. Mm-hmm. All
0: right, Kawa. I'm gonna. You know, what? I'm actually gonna. You have to. You have to earn your keep this week. This one's. This Bro, are one's you? Not, are you no, doing? I, are you bringing back the, the I, section? I, We're testing Kawa. No, I did it. I no. You got to read the next question from Connor Morgan. Right. I read it last week. It was hard. Now it's your turn. This is a three paragraph <laughs>
1: question. <laughs> okay, so. Connor Morgan says great content guys and love wrapping up my work week listing on Friday afternoons I had some thoughts on popsicle decks and fishbone quill Popsicle is underperforming in the meta because the lists are unoptimized people are trying too many gimmicks like marisa's workshop And tamatoa are using individually bad cards like scepter versus aiming for consistency The deck clearly has the best draw engine and it should be abused but not at the extent of making the deck less consistent Draw engines reduce your deck size in the game and you want to aim to draw consistent quality cards. From my own experience with pixel climbing and in-person play, this deck should be built as a hyper control deck by getting constant value off of your characters. This would be Max Tremaine, Hades, Floodborne, Gaston, etc. These cards always have meaningful impact when you drop them and don't rely on situational combos, which leads to bricking. 12 copies. Of maleficent dragons in your deck is insane and in control mirrors whoever has more advantage based removal will come out on top amber steel also cannot keep up with this unless they high roll and the matchup favors popsicle far more than ruby amethyst's slight advantage against the deck you want me to stop there or you want me to keep going Robert? keep going this okay as for fishbone quill versus inking off the top i generally agree with you guys except for the context of this deck When I'm evaluating using different kinds of removal, such as Double Tremaine versus Be Prepared, the amount of copies left in my deck matters for my decision. When I play a card like Mickey, I now have imperfect knowledge of my deck. While you can argue that this is irrelevant, it actually does matter when it comes to using removal optimally in grindy games. For now, I believe the Gramatala slash uh, Teeth combo and Quail provide adequate ramp and I always know what's in my Inkwell. If the, ma- if the meta changed to the point where I require more ramp and will sacrifice deck knowledge to do so, then it would be worth adding Mickey or One Jump in addition to what I'm already using. Even then, I would probably just consider Bell unless the meta is heavily slanted to aggro. Curious on your thoughts. Keep up the great content. Let me just say before Brendan and mine, uh dive deep into this this is a, a very intelligent card gamer in my opinion i think that he really really knows what he's talking about and i i say i really appreciate the in-depth comment because um this gets us in deep discussions and um we'll often learn from this ourselves and um you know we're, we're very much the type of people that we want to listen to your guys um opinions on cards and like we'll we'll kind of consider it. and it's it's often happened where it has actually changed our, our view on cards like even last week Moen, you, you even said after reading everyone's comments about Fishbone Quill, you really understand why people were playing it over just the Mickey, right? Like, you really respected people's um, reason for playing it, even if you preferred the Mickey over and you gave your reasoning. It's really important to have these debates and these discussions. So thank you very much for the comment. Okay, Brendan, off you go, my friend. What do you think?
0: Um, First thing I want to poke uh, at is this, this sentence that, um, in control mirrors whoever has a more advantage base removal will come out on top. Uh. I don't know about in Lorcana. I, I I agree with you. That's like a general philosophy around control mirrors. But in Lorcana, especially like due to how the win condition works, I think that, you know, you, know, you can, like we were in chapter one, even now with the new uh, evasive mini mouse with the 1-3, like that, that card is better than one for one removal is later in the game because if your opponent has to use something like a one for one removal in the form of Dragonfire. Um, I know Maleficent is the two-for-one, but in form of Dragonfire to remove your Mickey, uh, I think that you win out on that trade. So it is a form of removal in and of itself. You remove Dragonfire from your opponent's deck, they remove your Mickey on board, and you maybe get the board presence and the lore gain out of it. So I, I don't think that that is an absolute in terms of control mirrors. I often like to position myself as the as the deck that is asking the question and is the aggressor in that matchup. Also, um, I think we did give credence to something that you alluded to here in paragraph three about milling cards and, you know, specific combos that you're trying to do. But that's only if you go through your entire deck. It literally, if you go through the entire deck. If you don't do that, um, I think it's completely irrelevant, even if like there will be some when you mill the key card that could win you the game and maybe you lose that game. But the inherent fail rate there should be so infinitesimally low that it should be irrelevant. And I think that milling cards is a concept in general that players think about incorrectly because they mill the top of their deck, right? So you mill the, the card that you would draw, but it, it's irrelevant because just if you looked at it like this, what if you milled the card on the bottom of your deck? Would it change, your, would it change the way you evaluate that situation? It probably would, but it shouldn't, because they're the same card. They're effectively mm-hmm. the same card. Unless you tuck a card down or you know pitch a card to the bottom, the top card and the bottom card are the same card. So just because Unless you're you...
1: playing cauldron or something like that, then yeah. it really does not matter. It's essentially the same thing. Yeah,
0: so like milling a card off the top of your deck um only matters if you go through your entire deck. So.
2: Yeah. We also we also got that comment, I think, on, on last week's part where someone said, Oh, milling top card versus milling bottom card is the actually different, There's no difference. So mm-hmm. like why does Milling bottom. Why would milling bottom card matter if you don't wouldn't have seen it in the entire game? Um I think we talked about it a lot on last week's plot. I would like not to talk too much about it on, on this week's plot as well. Uh I, but I think the whoever has more advanced based removal will come out on top. Uh is like is true on a on a base level. So you added okay, but uh threats can also be removal mm-hmm. because they need to be answered and so they can also trade for cuts, which is I think one uh good Argument to have there, but and I think the second one is I think it used to be the case that maybe more if you have more advanced waste removal, like, um, like Tremaine, um, Hades or, or Maleficent would usually favor you, but I think it's changed with Spellbook and and the Merlins and the bounce package and everything. I think that that enables you winning the game even with while getting outvalued, um, which wasn't. That easy to do before, and I think with that being enabled, you can still lose the game even if you have like three maleficents in hand, and your opponent is at fifteen and they have a spellbook, and you're like, okay, I, even if I'm going to outresource my opponent, I, I can't catch up. Um, so I think that's that's very important. But I think the the point about popsicle, the popsicle deck underperforming due to maybe wanting to do the card draw stuff too much, I think is is very smart and. I I could maybe see it that uh, if you build the deck a little bit different, a little bit. Because sometimes the deck can feel like you're doing doing stuff, you're cycling your deck, maybe you're drawing one extra card or something, but you're not actually doing too much and it still can be clunky at times. So I, I can see that maybe building the deck in a way where you include more of these cards that are... Like consistently good every time you play them could make the deck a little bit better so i think that that's good food for thought um how i would spin these thoughts further would be uh okay but what are the issues with the deck and does this actually fix the issues of the deck because i i'm i'm thinking maybe the issues will still persist and so how how I would describe the popsicle deck in the current meta is like it completely destroys Emma Steel, as you correctly said more so than Ruby Amethyst does. But I th- I also think that it has problems against Aggro and problems against Ruby Amethyst itself. And I think both of these issues will not be fixed by um, putting more consistently good cards into the deck. I think both of those issues will still exist and will st- still hold the deck back in the current meta.
1: Mm.
2: That makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well put. So, I agree. Uh, Next one here is from Trent. They said, I'd recommend avoiding the Houston 2K. I was at GalaxyCon, in quotations, 2K, and they cut the pricing in half and didn't tell anybody. Only found out after I got in the car. Uh, After I got in the car with my prize, PPG is a super shady org. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't know anything about PPG, personally, but... I mean, it is good advice. I mean, it, I don't know if it's good advice, but it is advice because we were considering going to the Houston 2K and cutting pricing for whatever reason. And it happens, right? It especially happens when like not enough people show up. That, that's probably not going to happen at Lorcana because Lorcana, the tournaments are selling out, filling like crazy. So, but yeah, sometimes tournament organizers will do that. They'll be like, oh, it's a 2K. And then when like, you know, 30% of the people they expect to, to sign up, sign up like, oh, now it's a 1K. And you're like, what? <laughs> I paid yeah. 1k to get here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, yeah, just uh yeah, thanks Trent. Last one here is from Thunder Keg. They say the top card of your <laughs> All right, here we go. Here we go. The top card of your deck um is almost neverly really, is never equally unimportant or uninkable. You can look at all the cards you've seen and make an estimation of the cards uh of the cards in the rest of your deck and the uh, if the cards are the one in the rest of the deck, are the ones you need. If you haven't seen any be prepares, the odds of one being on top of your library are not the same as if they would be if you already saw them and you knew you only had one left in the deck. The odds change on the fly and are possible to judge. And are possible to judge. This isn't snap, where you only have one of, and every card is equal, equally likely to be any other one. I would say that uh, this one didn't make sense to me. Did? I, I
2: didn't. I. Didn't really completely get it. So it, 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 it is true that if I've seen a, a copy of my four be prepared, that it's less likely to draw another copy than if I haven't seen it. It's just I don't know what we're trying to say, right? Yeah.
0: It's it, still equally likely to be. So let's say that I've seen one be prepared. I have 20 cards in deck. It's equally likely to be at any position in the 20 cards, right? Unless I put mm-hmm. a card on the bottom of the deck, All all positions of the card in that deck. Uh, all three copies of positions that could be possible in that deck are equally likely to one another. So it being on the top of my deck, I guess, is in relation to it being 20, but it's could just be on the... I don't know. It just wouldn't affect how I would play the game, I don't think, uh, in regards to milling the
1: top yeah, of my I deck. Yeah, I don't think if I ever... Okay, let's just say I played three Mickey's. I guess the more you play, maybe it starts to matter. It, it all matters for how what how long the game goes right like it, it it would matter a lot more if you were seeing all of your cards every single game right but like you said if there was 20 and I, let's just let's just say i played two mickeys i don't think in my mind i'm ever realistically being like oh one of my be prepareds could have got could have been on my mickey like i'm still playing the game to say that my be prepares are in my deck i'm never really thinking like oh oh it's gonna be in the top oh, i'm just gonna lose forever like you have to just play the odds mm-hmm. and you know what I mean? I, I I personally don't think it impacts how how yeah, I would yeah, play yeah. the game. I think all, that you know? that's the key right yeah.
0: there. Is like, uh, <clears throat> is it possible that I Mickey Mill that be prepared that I'm waiting to draw in order to win the game? Yes. So I think a lot of this gets into philosophy, which is weird. Um, ultimately, you know, we really go down the rabbit hole, but ultimately, I would never ever change the way that I play Mickey Mouse or one jump ahead in order to account for this. I think that the the information is so like potentially irrelevant and not important to the actual gameplay that you would never take a uh, suboptimal line in order to respond to this information. Well, I mean, it's probably 99.9% of the time. There's maybe an outlier or corner case, Mm -hmm. but ultimately it doesn't change you taking the, the high value line, in my opinion.
2: Um, also is there, when you play Mickey Mouse, there's not even any information, right? Yeah. No, you You just ink it without ever seeing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's not even a point. So like, it doesn't actually change anything. That's not even this minuscule information part. It just doesn't matter. So it's like, if you lose the game and you would have won with a be prepared, and you check what card did my Mickey Mouse ink, and it's a bee prepared. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. It's like a fun thing to do. You can say, oh, I would have gotten the B prepared if it wasn't in my ink, but that doesn't mean that Mickey Mouse, uh, on average, change changes anything about how likely you are to be to to actually draw the B prepared. Yeah.
0: I, th- a- I think some people also look at that and they look at these lines. They're like, oh, there was, there was,
2: uh,
0: oh, I took the correct line and I lost the game. Yes, that's okay. That, that ha- happens. That happens. That, yeah. Happens. that happens. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You should still take the correct line. Like, it, you would lose vastly more games by taking the suboptimal lines to avoid that scenario than you would in the outlier or corner case where it does lose you the game. You still, like, there is an inherent fail rate. To the the optimal line in the correct strategy, and that's just the card game, so you can't avoid that in a reasonable way. Anything else? I agree. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah, we're done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll be. I, I think we'll be talking about this concept for years because I mean, it comes up in every card game, and it's a. Uh, I mean, it's a discussion for sure. <laughs> it's
1: a dis- but, but it's, it's like- interesting. It is interesting to have the discussion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, we arrive on the, on, on, at the. Uh, we arrive at the point that it's like, okay, well it actually kinda of doesn't matter, but it's still I think it's
2: still good to have these discussions. So for know. for me I would say like for us this is very this concept's very clear. But I think it is very understandable that initially you would have these thoughts of oh it could be a disadvantage to Middle or to, to not to Mickey Mouse uh, at the top card of Medic. I think it completely makes sense. So you need to really think about it and then get it into your head that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I well, de- well said. Yeah, I definitely had these exact like I mean, this is exactly how I approach card games initially as well. And also, like there's there's uh derivatives of this kind of thoughts, which is like overvaluing like information on your opponent's hand or their deck and stuff like that. Um, you know, like the card like probe or whatever I forget what that card is called in here, but what is effectively peak in Magic the Gathering. That that card we talked. We compared it to Gitaxian Probe and Magic, which is a broken card, but that card was broken because it costs zero mana. <laughs> and this card costs one. So it's like, would I pay one resource in order to get this information and tempo myself out of an entire turn? Because you go from turn five to turn four when you pay the one. It's like, no, you wouldn't. The information is not irrelevant, but it's also not relevant enough to warrant an entire ink. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting concept. Anyway, we did have our main topic prepared. Uh, for today but I think we're gonna leave it till next week and that's just like we're gonna talk about how to prepare for events because how to prepare for events and especially how to prepare for t- paper events is very interesting Um, like drawing up your expected metagame is, is something to consider it could be regionally based it's likely not 100% representative of what's On Pixelborn, like you can't just look at the Pixelborn data. Um, You need to understand like what kind of deck you're going to bring to the tournament. You're going to play the best deck. You're going to play a deck that tries to beat the deck. You're going to try to break the meta with a new unknown deck. How long should you be testing that deck in order, you know, before the tournament? Before you give up on some an idea like that? Um, What does proper testing look like? Like, why would you need a testing team? Why are testing teams important? Why wouldn't you just play on Pixelborn? How do you form a testing team and like, what should you, like, how, how do you test, right? Testing schedules, uh, getting data, aggregating that data, understanding and learning from your results. Um, and also the day of, so being prepared for long hours, these early tournaments in Locana will likely be run inefficiently. It's just how card games go. they will probably be 12 to 14 hours or something around those lines. Like, how do you prepare for that? How do you get old? You know, there's things that people don't consider when they think about playing a card game for long, which is like food, sustenance, water, (laughs) uh, etc. But like also game plans, you know, not in this game, but what would be sideboard guides. All these kinds of things need to prepa- be prepared for so you can reduce as be much... Be
1: prepared. The- yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so you can reduce as much mental load as possible before you're actually getting into the match. And then, of course, they'll, you know, go through eight rounds in a single day. Maybe lose round one, round two, and you know, let it tell you, but you got to take everything match by match, game by game. And then also we'll talk about how to deal with nerves. Because if you haven't played... A physical card game at a major tournament with hundreds of people in a convention center. You're, call it, you're probably going to be pretty nervous. <laughs> it's just how it goes, especially if you get on feature match. It, feature match is something you definitely have to get used to. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, I don't know, some people are better at it than others, but it's definitely, it's definitely an acquired, acquired taste. All right. That's it for this episode. but closing out. Again, we do have the giveaway for the Disney 100, which I'll hold up one more time. Um, We'll be going off the written reviews on an Apple podcast. So if you want to get submitted, Uh, shoot us one of those. Thank you to all the people that have done so, so far. You've helped us out immensely on pod platforms. So we really, really appreciate it. And yeah, the number one thing you can do is leave us a review on one of those platforms. So Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, I, we did a lot of pretty long question section that dragged on this week. But if you want to get your question or statement run out, right just, just a comment on YouTube. That's where we field those. Um, there's a video version of this on YouTube as well. YouTube.com slash podcast. If that's subscribed while you're there. Once again, we hit 1K subscribers. So thank you so much. Twitter's our APG, Moin underscore HS, Kawatech underscore CG. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week.